Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Deborah Luster. She's featured in Aperture Magazine's forthcoming spring issue, which is titled Prison Nation. It spotlights how artists have responded to and engaged with America's astronomical incarceration rate. The magazine will feature a suite of pictures Luster made in 2013 at Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola, a maximum security prison. The pictures show actors in the life of Jesus Christ, a passion play staged by prisoners for the general public. Many of the pictures in the issue are on view now in Aperture's New York Gallery. They'll be there through March 7th. Concurrently, Lester's work with poet C.D. Wright is on view in The Art of Collaboration at the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Yale. It was curated by Melissa Barton, Elizabeth Frengel, and Nancy Cool. It'll be there through April 15th. Lester's work has most often looked at circles of violence and how they perpetuate themselves. Her work, including portraits of Louisiana prisoners and of places in New Orleans where homicides were committed, is in the collections of dozens of American art museums, such as the Whitney and SF MoMA. On the second segment, curator Beatrice Gross discusses her exhibition Francois Morellet, which is at Diaz Beacon and Chelsea locations through June 2nd. But first, Deborah Luster, after a break. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit kimballart.org for more information. Photographer Robert Polidori, known for his images of architecture and human habitats, created a series of images of the Getty Center shortly before it opened in 1997. On the occasion of the center's 20th anniversary, the exhibition Robert Polidori, 20 Photographs of the Getty Museum features captivating behind-the-scenes views of the building and galleries as objects from J. Paul Getty's painting, sculpture, and decorative arts collections were being installed. Learn more about this exhibition and other ways to spend the holidays at getty.edu slash 360. This season, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Stories of Almost Everyone. Exploring a dominant impulse in contemporary sculpture of the last decade, the exhibition highlights the work of artists who use found or ready-made objects to convey history, sight, memory, and economies of use. With an international roster of more than 40 artists, Stories of Almost Everyone investigates the relationship between material objects and the stories we tell about them. Stories of Almost Everyone is on view January 28th to May 6th at the Hammer Museum. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Tarsila do Amaral, Inventing Modern Art in Brazil, is on view now at the Museum of Modern Art. Discover the bright, vibrant work of a daring modernist who is a major figure in the emergence of modernism in Brazil. It's the first exhibition in the United States devoted to her work and features nearly 120 paintings, drawings, sketchbooks, and more. Get more info and tickets at moma.org and plan your visit today. And we're back. Deborah Lester, welcome to the Modern Art Nets podcast. Thanks so much for having me. The pictures in the new Aperture, Aperture 230, and on view at Aperture in New York, are pictures you made at Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola. It's a maximum security prison that houses 6,000 people. 
in your essay in your 2003 book, One Big Self, when you first engaged with Angola, you explain how you sort of accidentally ended up making this work. I know the stories in the essay you told in the book, but could you quickly retell it? Because I think it sets up everything we're going to talk about. So in 1988, uh, my mother was killed by a contract killer. And following that murder, I was, because of the the way everything happened, I was also worried about being killed myself. So I was in a, a big emotional mess for many years. And so part of my recovery was learning photography. My mother had been uh, the family photographer and my grandmother, and uh, so sort of picking up where they left off. And it also was a way to sort of hide it was a shield for me to get back out into society. So I would take my camera and drive up and down these rural roads in North Carolina, and I'd see something that looked interesting and stop and get out and start photographing and doing it slowly, slowly. So I studied. I was a literature major, so I would take, didn't know anything about photography, so I would audit classes and take workshops, tried to learn the craft a bit. And after I sort of got going with photography, I really wanted to find a project that would help me deal with the death of my mother. And I had all these ideas, and they were all really bad. (laughs) 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 And then uh, in 1998, I had moved to Louisiana, and the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities recruited a number of photographers around the state to go to the northeast section of Louisiana and take photographs to illustrate poverty of that area to accompany an empowerment zone application to try to raise funds to revive this part of the world. And I was driving around and scouting what I thought I might do, and I noticed all of these abandoned buildings, homes along the road, like little sharecropper cabins and one thing and another. And But then I saw all of these prisons, not large prisons, but private prisons. And, and then there was one state prison. So I thought, well, maybe, where is everybody? Maybe everybody's in jail. So I one Sunday morning, I stopped and got out of my truck and I went up and Seems ridiculous now, but I, I would just knocked on the gate <laughs> with my knuckles. <laughs> I had to read it twice to make sure I was reading it right when I read it recently. <laughs> and the warden came out. It was a small prison, about 200 men. But the warden, Ray Dixon, had been from an, a long line of wardens and prison guards at Angola Prison. And we got on really well. And I said, would it be okay if I came in here and just spent a day just photographing some of the men that would volunteer to be photographed. And he let me do it. It seemed so easy. And when I developed the, the film and printed a few of the prints, I just knew that this was what I had to do. I mean, it's it's counterintuitive, but uh, it, it was like I, I knew that I had to do it. And so I went back to him and said, 
can I come back some more and take these portraits? And uh, he said, well, I'll, I'll set it. I'll see if I can get us an appointment with prison board. So he took me to the prison board in Lake Providence, Louisiana. And I went into the courthouse. I went up the stairs and over on one side was the, was the DA's office. And there was yellow tape in front of it. Someone had gone in and burned all the files in the DA's office. I mean, this was like the wild west out there. And then I went in and described what I wanted to do to the prison board. And I think Ray Dixon really facilitated my getting in and being able to work there because I went to a number of prisons after that for two years and couldn't even get my big toe in the door. So I worked there for some time, a year maybe, going back and forth from where I lived in North Louisiana. I had rules and the rules were I didn't want any prison architecture in the images. I was just really wanting to see who was in prison, not images of people in prison or prison with people in them. I don't know. But the inmates got to pose themselves. They volunteered to be photographed, and they got back wallet-sized images of of the images I took. So they'd be probably 10 to 15 images per inmate. So I took the work from East Carroll Parish Prison Farm, and I went to Angola, and I interviewed there, and the warden let me in. And then I went to LCIW, the women's prison at St. Gabriel, and uh, they let me in as well. So I finished the projects there. I think I worked, I think I photographed five or six years in the prisons and handed back about 25,000 images to inmates. In that same essay at the beginning of, of One Big Self, the phrase you used to describe what you mentioned a moment ago, that in your family it was, it was the women who took pictures, is that women manned the camera, which is you know a delightfully gendered-winking term. This might be a completely stupid question, but why did women man the camera, and why did you remember it that way? Well, I don't know why they, they manned the cameras, but they did. I'm now, I didn't ever see, I grew up with my grandparents, and I never saw my grandfather take a photograph, but my grandmother took photographs all the time, and they were always at an angle. We were sort of the diagonal family, I think I remember in that interview. <laughs> and my mother also, she took photographs constantly. You know, it, it drove me crazy. It got to the point where I would only turn my back and she could I would only let her photograph the back of my head but I don't know but she loved photography and she organized all the images and so there you have it so these new pictures that are in aperture are pictures that document the production of a play at Angola the passion play called the life of Jesus Christ that means you've been making pictures of and around prisons and Angola for about 20 years have the reasons you photograph prisoners and, and your motivations for photographing prisoners changed in that time, or are they pretty much the same as they were 20 years ago? Well, I, after I finished the One Big Self project, I didn't think I needed to go back to the prison anymore. I had taken 25,000 prints. It was, a, it was working, um, and I had all of these images that I did for one big self, are all they're all hand poured silver emulsion on prepared aluminum, and I would get about one out of thirty would be 
be usable. So I worked on this project for not only the many years that I photographed there, but then for several years just printing afterwards. It was sort of like working in the license tape factory at the at the prison, and I think I made about that much money, which is about two cents an hour. But so I think I thought I had done it. You know, I didn't feel any need to do that, and uh, and so I took some time and then started a companion project, which was the Tooth for an Eye project, which was places where homicides have been committed in New Orleans. But in 2013, there was assistant warden there named Kathy Fontenot who had been to Scotland and had seen this play produced and thought it would be a perfect project for the inmates at Angola and actually brought it to Louisiana from Scotland. And she's such, she's so bright and such a great person. And she called me and said, would you please come and take some portraits of the inmates that are participating in this play? So it was, of course, I wanted to go back, but but I didn't feel the need that I felt uh, with the first project. But I wanted to go back and I wanted to visit with some of the men and I wanted to, to see Kathy and I wanted to see the, the play. There's a, an amazing inmate who is now out of prison named Gary Tyler, who had worked with the inmates. He had been in prison. He was the youngest man on death row at one time. And he had worked with the drama club and been a mentor to so many of the inmates and had done such a wonderful job that I just really wanted to be a part of that. But So two weeks before Easter 2013 is, is when you go to Angola to make this work. And you went with a novelist named Zachary Lazar, who, who also wrote the introduction to the work in Aperture 230. You have often worked in collaboration with writers or poets, as, as you have, say, with C.D. Wright. And, and, and indeed, there's, there's a show at the Beinecke Library at Yale now that examines collaborations between artists and writers, and, and your work is in that show. So before we get you back to Angola in 2013, what do you get out of collaborating with someone who works in a different discipline? And does it impact the work? Well, of course, I think it impacts the work. It, you know, being a photographer is kind of lonely. And C.D. Carolyn and I had known one another since the 70s. I was a student in her creative writing class. And we became friends, and we had stayed friends all that time. And then after I, after my mom was, was killed and I started photographing, she immediately asked me to give her work to include in her books. And probably if she hadn't extended that invitation, I, I don't know if I would have ever really become a photographer. I'm not, I'm not sure about that, but she took a big chance on me. But I think we, we really, we had a lot in common. We came from the same part of the world, from Arkansas, and we both love literature, and we had a history together, so we have that connection. I don't collaborate with people just to be collaborating with them. I, I have to have some other kind of connection. And certainly Carolyn and I had that. And Zach and I have a very strange connection as well. I met him. Someone had suggested I read his his book, Evening's Empire, which is, was an investigation of, as an adult, going back and investigating the contract killing of his father in Phoenix, Arizona. And my mother was killed by a contract killer in Phoenix, Arizona. And in this book 
Evening's Empire, he named a lot of my mother's acquaintances because she was kind of in society and uh, the streets that we went up and down and the areas of the city that my mom inhabited. So, so we just looked at one another and went, whoa, <laughs> how did this happen? And, and it turns out that Zach and his wife lived two blocks from my house. So we just looked at one another and I said, well, I'm getting ready to go to, to Angola to photograph this passion play. Would you like me to see if I can get you access? Would you like to come along and maybe write a bit about it? So that's how that happened. But I can't say I've been just really lucky in both of those instances to, to work with someone that I have a personal connection with in, in other areas. There are eight pictures in Aperture. They're all portraits. They're all of actors in the play. The decision you made here is is pretty straightforward to present the thing via portraiture. You could have made any manner of other kinds of pictures, though, you, uh, of the stage, of the preparations and rehearsal for the play, of the action of the actual play, you know, all that kind of thing. But you decided on portraiture. So why portraiture for for the, for this work? Well, the light was really bad in the rodeo arena. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, I, you know, I just, I love taking portraits of these people. It was, when I worked in the prisons, it was such a gift. These, many of these people just give you everything. You know, they just, so they're so comfortable in their bodies. I don't think they were really posing for me. I think they were probably posing for whomever it was they intended to send their photographs to, you know, their mother, their sister, their wives, their kids. And I, I, I don't know, I was just so moved by the portraits and these people's countenances that I really wasn't interested in much of what goes on in the prison other than that. You presented the actors in role. For example, there's a picture of Bobby Wallace as, as Jesus Christ. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. He has a crown of thorns. He's wearing uh, the loincloth that, that is so familiar to art history nerds from centuries of painting. <laughs> Could you talk us through why you decided to present people in role, maybe using Bobby Wallace as, as an example? Well, that's what I'd been asked to do. I'd been asked to photograph the play. And so, I mean, that was my charge. But what I found so fascinating was they made their own costumes. The inmates made their own costumes. And they made their costumes out of whatever they could scrounge around the prison. For instance, there is, there's, there's a man seated. He's a riding Roman soldier, Mr. Blackburn, I believe. But their skirts are the seats of vinyl kitchen chairs. And they're wearing their helmets or football helmets with dowels added or little cardboard wings attached. But I just found it fascinating how they had created so lovingly these costumes for themselves out of whatever. And the costumes are fabulous. I just can't imagine anything better. So, of course, I wanted to photograph them in costume. Several of the pictures aren't just of the actors in costume, but they are in character and carrying out an action. There's Layla Roach Roberts, who plays the part of an inquisitor, for example, and Vernon Vicious Washington, who plays a Pharisee. And in 
So for example, in the picture of, of Roberts, he is, uh, he has a, a coin purse that's open slightly and he's presenting coins. Was that your idea to, for them to be kind of in role and in action? Did it just work out that way? Was that, how did, how did that come to be? Because it really adds an element of, I don't know, closeness, if that's the right word, to the pictures and also kinds of, kind of reminds us of uh, the very humanity required to translate a work into performance. One story with Layla Roberts, and I didn't know this at the time, but he and a friend of his abducted a woman in Shreveport, Louisiana, and they took her to an ATM. This has been 20 some odd years ago before cell phones. So they, she went through the drive through window and they wanted $5,000 or something. And they got like $300 or something like that. And, and then they let her out and they took her change. So she wouldn't call the, couldn't go to a payphone, And they told her, they weren't very good criminals. They told her, we're gonna, just going to take your car back to where you found it, where we picked you up so you won't have any trouble finding it. And so, of course, she found a phone, and the police arrested them immediately. So both of these guys, Quantos and Layla, were doing life without possibility of parole for about $150.27 apiece. So when I... When I heard this story later from Zach, who had spoken with Layla, I just, the irony of that for him now to be holding these few coins that were actually minted at the prison, they made their own coins because they aren't allowed to have any money. I just found it incredibly moving. I just, I think a lot of these men related to the parts they played for whatever reason. You know, there's a, there's a lot of really great stuff in that 2003 essay you wrote at the beginning of One Big Self, and I'm sure people like me go back to it over and over again, both because it's good and because, you know, you haven't done a million interviews. And, and you wrote, I cannot explain the need I felt to produce these portraits because I do not fully understand it myself. Do you think you have it all figured out now? Do you, have, you, have you answered that question for yourself now? I'm not sure I could articulate it, but I feel like I have resolved a lot of the issues that I went in needing to resolve. You know, I tried to go to therapists and I would start telling them my story after my mom was killed and they would ask for documentation or they would tell me that, that they might have to call the police if I told them anything. That <laughs> so, so I wasn't having much luck on that front. So I had, so I guess, that project in large part was just trying to save myself and I'm still here. So, <laughs> <laughs> so maybe it worked. Cause when you discussed this, this recent work, there's a real, not, not just the sense of humanity I, I noted a few minutes ago, but also this kind of real sense of narrative uh, conclusion is not the right word, but narrative kind of circle making where you, talk about the work in terms of people's role in the play and their own life histories and indeed what they and other prisoners do at the prison. And, and it's a, it sounds like a pretty complete circle. And in reading what you wrote in 2003, it sounds like you didn't have that circle completed yet. Well, I'm a story addict, so... <laughs> 
I just photograph people so I can find out who they are and what their story is. So, so there's some of that there. I wanted to also ask you about Tooth for an Eye, a choreography of violence in Orleans Parish, which you mentioned a few minutes ago. It looks at, I think, what you referred to in the book as an invisible population through the sites at which those people who are no longer visible were killed. And there were a couple of those pictures I wanted to ask about as a way of kind of discussing the project. The pictures are are, are produced quite large. They're all tondos. Um, they're all circular in the book. And they're everything from pictures of buildings to uh, pictures of ditches to pictures of, well, let's start with a picture of City Park, a picture of, of palm fronds, a kind of intense beauty. Do you remember that picture? Yes, I remember that that photograph. And I don't remember the text precisely that goes with it, but I think it was a, like a 14-year-old girl that was killed there. So how did you feel about or think through making such a beautiful and, and surely consciously beautiful picture of a place where where that had happened? What were you, how did you think through the relationship between beauty and, and horror there? It was a beautiful place. It was in the park. You know, my process... Hang on, I have this book over here. Hang on. Yes, yeah, so here's how I describe the process of, of, of producing this project. Spontaneous, happenstantial, involuntary, inverted, intuitive, unbidden, subjective, systematic and unsystematic obsessiveness describe the general working style employed for this project. So this was a really difficult project to do emotionally. I loved working in the prisons. I I loved it, and I really enjoyed the people and all the people that I photographed and my interactions with them. This project, however, I was so depressed that <laughs> that at one point I thought that I that I was sick, and then I thought I was going to die, and then I went to visit my husband in Ireland and. By the time I got home, I felt fine. And the minute I sat down to try to map out more of these homicides, I've complete, I felt completely ill again. I'm not sure I'm answering your question here, but... Well, maybe the beauty of that picture was a bit of a refuge? Well, I think a lot of the images are beautiful because I think a lot of the city is, is really beautiful. And I don't... I can't really take a, a real intentionally ugly picture. It's just not in me. Maybe I can take them, but I'm there. it's not intentional. <laughs> but I sort of tried to, I, I know that I thought if I was 14 years old and I was in the park and I was being killed, what, what, where am I? I'm, you know, I'm next to this beautiful bayou I'm with palm fronds over it. And I guess that's kind of where I was coming from there. One, one of the really great things about this book is it brings together kind of the three biggest themes in American history, um, race, violence, and, and land or landscape. And a lot of the pictures, to my mind anyway, refer to all three of those historical themes at, at once. There's a picture of 2400 North Villare Street in St. Roque, St. Rock. That's Villary Street in St. Rock. Villary. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I was close, but not really very close at all. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have an image of it on, on manpodcast.com, and it's a, a, a picture from kind of a front porch type space with kind of classic uh, whitewashed southern columns on the left looking out on, on a street in a neighborhood. It sure seems to me like an intentional riff on Barnard's famous pictures of Nashville from the Capitol made during the Civil War. Was that intentional? Well, it wasn't in my mind, but I'm sure that it was in there somewhere. That was actually my husband and I got married on that porch, and our everyone was down in the street. Oh, and went and across the street there, you do you see that a safe door on the building? Yes. And that's Mel Chin's piece, uh, where he collected fake money and people drew on the money, and he put it in this vault across the street, painted the whole inside was gold. And then he rented an armored car and he took all this fake money to Washington, D.C. and put it on the steps of the Capitol. And it represented the amount of money that it would take to rid the city of lead poisoning, of lead. So I was very happy that that was there at the time. But nonetheless, there are like four murders, I think, listed with with that piece, right? At different times, different years. And there's a lot more than that, I can tell you. There's there's another, I mean, there are a bunch of pictures in the book that, that remind me of the 19th century, but another of them is 700 block of Burgundy Street in the French Quarter, where you're uh, kind of up on a second floor, maybe third floor, but you know, you get the idea. And with the exception of, of a line of cars, it might as well be a picture from, you know, 1880 or something. Were you, you know, either in this picture or in the series at large, were you interested in relationships between long ago pasts and the present, or were these entirely about the present? Well, no, well, yeah, I, I'm interested in the history. You know, I used a film that was very slow ASA, it was ASA of six. So it it's sort of blurs any sort of uh, movement and so a more produces more of a haunted kind of image and that's certainly what I was after and I suppose that has a look of being a, a historical photograph because there aren't any cars with current cars or or fashion that would that would place the image uh, today and today a number of the pictures show an entropic situation, you know, somewhere where the city's falling apart or where plant life is, is taking over. One of them is, for example, is I think 1200 block of Turo Street in the 7th Ward. Were you interested in the relationship between entropy and decay and, and what had happened in within the frames of the pictures? Well, one thing, one unexpected result of doing this project and 2008, 2009, 2010, a lot of the city had been washed away during the federal flood, but a lot of it hadn't been washed away, but was crumbling because of it, because of termites. So a lot of what you see in those images no longer exists in the city. So it was uh, in the process of becoming undone. The city's changed a lot since then. 
last history question. Sorry, I'm a history nerd. <laughs> There's a picture in the book in which you include yourself. It's South Liberty and 7th Streets, St. Joseph Cemetery, Central City. And we see you and your camera in shadow in the foreground. Obviously, photographers and their view cameras have been, photographers have been including themselves and their view cameras in pictures since nearly the beginning of landscape photography. Why did you choose to include yourself here? Well, you know, when I would photograph, I would I would take a, a, a portion of the city in a map, and I would map out locations, and I would make little thumbnail descriptions of what happened there, and then I would go out in the car, and I had I finally hired an assistant because I decided I just didn't really want to die alone, and so sometimes I would drive around and I wouldn't get out of the car, and then sometimes I would, but it, I worked fast. Because I, I just didn't want to be that vulnerable in some neighborhoods. So it was probably just, it was probably trying to make the the photograph a little more interesting. And it was probably just had to do with where the sun was that day at the time that I happened to be there. But I do love, I love all photographs with shadows of photographers in them. So I'm sure that was there too. Yeah, I love him too. <laughs> that it's funny that story reminds me a little bit of uh, Mitch Epstein, who who has made photographs of oil refineries and chemical plants around the country, uh, and I think maybe in Louisiana too. And he's talked about how I, I think I I don't remember if there was a, a, a teeny shadow of him in one picture or not, and and he kind of gave the same answer because he was worried about chemical refinery security targeting and harassing him and how. Same answer, different circumstance. I haven't asked about any of the the one big self pictures yet. There are a couple of things about them I'm 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 curious about. Uh, many of them, most of them, of course, were shot indoors, but others were shot in a cotton field, and and, and they're portraits of of people in the cotton field working in the cotton field. Why did you want to show the cotton field? Well, one of my rules was that I didn't want to show any bars or any prison architecture, but the fields didn't contain those. So I wanted to include the agricultural component of it because this is a, it's a, a Angola is a big prison farm, and the other photographs, none of the photographs were taken inside; they were all taken out like um, sort of passageways between buildings. I would tape up some black velvet and just and try to find a place where the light might work because I didn't take in any lights or anything. So it was just kind of catch as catch can as far as studio situation there. One one more question about the cotton fields. You know, we talked a moment ago about the references to American history in in the work. Was that part of the attraction to shooting in a cotton field that you could kind of really get 160 years of American, 140 years of American history into one picture? Well, I have to say that that land, when you go there, you feel it. The former warden, Warden Kane, I believe he said once that 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 land was probably had seen more tears and sorrow than any other place in the United States because it's been. It was a. There was uh, uh, Native Americans were there. There was a big Tunica massacre there, Tunica Indian massacre, and. Then it was uh, plantations and owned by the largest domestic slave trader in the United States, Isaac Franklin. 
Then it was convict lease system that Sam James operated, and, and the, that was in effect until 1901, and that in many ways was worse than being a slave because you, no one took care of you if something happened to one of the of the inmates. Uh, they just went and got another one from the state. And then it was has since then, since 1901, it has been the state maximum security prison. So it's really a very haunted patch of land, 18,000 acres. So you can't help but feel that history there, I, th- I think. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine why. Did you learn all that after starting the project or was that kind of part of what had you walking those those roads to begin with? Well, I guess you feel it. I didn't know what to expect when I first went there. And and after after I uh, shot the Passion Play, I went back the next year and did a series of 35 millimeter film screen tests of some of the men that participated in the Passion Play in both their costumes and in their prison guard. And while I was there, the warden allowed me to stay in a guest house that's built up on the side of the hill. So, I mean, it's this vast delta, but then the Tunica Hills come out out of that. So I was at, at this perch up there. And when the sun started going down, I'd never been there at night. When the sun started going down, I was on the deck there looking out and this mist was rising and it was was really like spirits. It had a profound effect on me. And so I'm now working on a project about the history of the place itself, of the land, not the history of the prison per se, but the history of the land back as far as our history goes. So I've learned a lot about it since I started researching that project. You tell a story in the book about how uh, you would give each prisoner 10 or 15 of the aluminum pictures, and you would from time to time, back then in the early 2000s, hear stories of how those pictures were sent home to people and kind of how they existed in the world as the people whose portraits you took sent them to, sent those portraits to, to, to friends or people they knew. Do you still hear those pictures, you know, 15 years on? I'm sorry, do you still hear those stories 15 years on? Well, I, I do want to correct and just say that I didn't give them back aluminum prints. The, of course, the administration wouldn't allow that. So they're just little wallet-sized paper prints that I gave them. But interestingly, it's been, how long has it been? 20-something years since I was there? Or 20 years? How long has it been? <laughs> 2003 was the book. I think the, the pictures start being dated 98 or 99 or something. In 1999, I was at Angola before they kicked me out. But I got a call from the Innocence Project not long ago here in New Orleans. And they said, we have a man who is a client of ours, and we would like to provide a photograph for the press. But the only photograph he has of himself is a little photograph that you took of him in 1999. And I, and they said, is it okay if we use it? I said, yes, please don't credit me <laughs> because those prints, and I'm sure that, you know, they weren't all very good, but he did, you know, they, they used that. And that was his photograph that was taken before he was released. I don't know how long he'd spent there, 20 or 30 years. He was 
an innocent man. Finally, you are, you know, one of, you've become one of America's most prominent portraitists and your, your portraits have a conceptual tightness to them that is, you know, complete and almost daunting. Are there other portraitists that you particularly admire and, and have looked at over the years as you've made this work? You know, I looked, I remember right before I went into the prisons, I was looking a lot at um, Saidu Kita, uh, African photographer. But before that, and for a long time, I'm a huge fan of Mike Disfarmer's work. Do you know his work? I don't. I don't. He was a portrait photographer in Heber Springs, Arkansas, back in the 30s and 40s. And he's a very strange guy. His name was Mike Myers. And at one point, he said, I was picked up by a tornado as a baby and deposited into the Myers family. And I don't belong here. He said, they are all farmers, and I am not a farmer. And he renamed himself Mike Disfarmer. And he moved into Heber Springs, and he ate ice cream and took portraits. And they are some of the most amazing arresting portraits I've ever seen in my life. And they're just with a regular backdrop, or sometimes there'll be a stripe up the wall. Anyway, I grew up not that far from Heber Springs, Arkansas. And and I, I don't know, I, do, I know that he was a huge influence. In fact, in the Tooth for an Eye, if you look up in the corner of the text portion, it'll say Dis Archive Number because it's an archive. I like to work in archive, but it was sort of an homage to Disfarmer because it's not really an archive, but it, it is an archive. So so it's a disarchive. So that was my nod to him. I wondered about that one. <laughs> I read so Disfarmer has been discovered in the last couple decades, and there have been exhibitions. How did you know about him as a young person? How did you come to know about him as a younger person? I didn't know about him. That I, Jack Woody at Twin Palms published a beautiful book on him, and I think that's when I first saw the work. And I and there was, maybe I saw some earlier work. There was another book that was done in Arkansas that was published. Somebody found his negatives after he died, a lot like Belloc who I also love very much. There's a photographer, Dan Estabrook, you may know him, and he he described work that he loved, and I love th- this description of it. He said, I, I love work that satisfies a personal obsession, satisfies the personal obsession of the artist. And uh, I think that's probably what Belloc was doing, and I think that's what Disfarmer may have been doing, and, and I think it's probably what I've I do. (laughs) Deborah Lester, thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. The Guggenheim Museum in New York presents the first comprehensive survey in the United States of work by contemporary artist Jan Vo. In his installations, sculptures, photographs, and works on paper, Vo questions the way we define ourselves through personal histories, cultural affiliations, and national allegiances. He treats objects, whether they are ancient Roman sculptures, letters written by prominent politicians, or glittering chandeliers from a grand Parisian ballroom, as narrative vessels that are both vividly personal and broadly historical. Visit through May 9th 
and experience artist tours, films, and concerts in conjunction with Jan Vo. Take my breath away. Learn more at Guggenheim.org. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. On view through March 3rd is Living Proof, Drawing in 19th Century Japan, exploring the methods, techniques, and subjects of drawings during Japan's Edo and Meiji periods. Originally created as the primary step in making ukoye prints, drawings of the type exhibited were often discarded or destroyed through the process of printing. With more than 70 of these rare works on display, Living Proof bears witness to the working practices of some of the most celebrated print artists of the era, including Hokusai, Kunayoshi, and Yoshitoshi. For more information, please visit pulitzerarts.org. Experience First Sculpture, Hand Axe to Figure Stone, an exhibition that explores prehistoric tools and collected objects as evidence of the beginnings of artistic intention and craft. In the first museum exhibition to present ancient hand axes as works of art, the show highlights the aesthetic qualities of each stone and provides crucial historical and scientific information to give the viewer a deeper understanding of human history, as well as an enriched appreciation for humankind's early ability to sculpt beautiful objects. On view through April 28th at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas. Learn more at nashersculpturecenter.org. Welcome back. My next guest is curator Beatrice Gross. Her exhibition, Francois Morellet, is at Dia's Beacon and Chelsea locations through June 2nd. Morellet was a pioneering conceptualist whose abstract work was often built around systems and later randomness. This is the first in-depth examination of Morellet's work in the United States in over three decades. Gross's exhibition brochure is available for free download. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Beatrice Gross, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Hello. Before we get into Francois Morellet's work and your show, I think it's useful to note and address that here is a man who's one of France's most important post-war artists. He starts his mature career in 1952. He makes work that seems to touch on areas that would interest artists in America and indeed around the world in the 1970s and 1980s in particular. And yet he's substantially underknown, maybe even almost unknown, in America. Why and how has America mostly missed him? <laughs> well, the reasons of successful or unsuccessful critical reception can be rather contingent. But it is true that in François Morlet's case, there are a number of reasons that might be almost like a sequence of repeated misunderstandings. His work has been widely exhibited in Europe. And relatively early on, you mentioned he started as a mature production in 1952, had a few shows to start with the first two decades, but really in 1971 and on, was widely exhibited, collected, written about throughout Europe, but never got real breakthroughs in the U.S. despite being part of some important exhibitions. He was part of the Responsive Eye exhibition at Moment 65, for instance. He even... Uh, benefited from a large retrospective show in the mid-80s that was initiated by the Albert Knox Gallery in Buffalo, New York, and then traveled to the Brooklyn Museum, Miami, Montreal, etc. Or more recently, had a wonderful work included in the group show Colored Chart at MoMA, curated in 2008 by Ann Temkin. So there were some opportunities here and there, but 
they, I think, are rather, if not objective, but at least interpretative reasons that would help us understand why those breakthroughs didn't really happen. For a long time, I think, first of all, his work was associated with optical art and kinetic art. And that was probably related to the reception of the Responsive Eye Exhibition in 1965. It was also associated with concrete art and perhaps some very serious or austere aspects of this kind of art, even though the artist himself distanced his work from those associations. There's another element that may be even more polemical is what has been called the transatlantic divide, which I believe in many ways was perhaps not that strong or false or maybe based on misunderstandings here again. But there was surely a form of protectionism or chauvinism, notably in New York, I think perhaps relieved or glad to have become a new international center for contemporary art, while Paris in the afterwar period lost its sphere of influence. And there were definitely some unkind words or ungenerous words between some American artists associated with minimal art, for instance, towards the European generation approaching anew the tradition of geometric abstraction. Two other reasons that are more specific to Morlaix, I think, might be the fact that he was a strong pioneer in conceptual art, but of a Dadaist kind. He had a very strong sense of humor, using, for instance, chance factor, even having a tendency towards iconoclasm with his own work, even. And this sense of humor led him even to self-deprecation very often. And I think maybe that did him a certain disservice. He joked very often that he was so successful in Germany, for instance, which he was, again, very early on, because precisely people did not understand his sense of humor and his self-deprecation constantly. Finally, even though he was a great traveler, traveled not only for his arts and exhibitions being organized internationally, especially starting in the early 1970s, and he was also a personal great traveler, he remained and lived in his hometown, Cholet, his entire life. Cholet is a small city in the Vendée region, south of Angers, a little over three hours away from Paris, which he was visited very often, but I believe did remain in a somewhat isolation in his hometown. Geometric and mathematical systems are at the core of Morellet's work starting in the early 1950s, again, really a generation almost before, say, American artists would, would pick up on, on those same interests. How and why were they important to him? They were important to him, first of all, as a reaction against something that he did not want. He knew he was to be an artist, he was to make art, but he knew that his art had to be as neutral and objective as possible, mostly in reaction against the dominant movement in France at the time that is lyrical abstraction, or École de Paris. Perhaps in reaction also in the aftermath of the disaster of the Second World War and the afterwar, a period of reconstruction, it felt important to put aside the notion of personal taste his entire ambition really was to question or challenge really the figure of the artist as a romantic genius, but also challenge or question the very notion of art. What is art? What can it do? And the best way to produce one that he felt could be perhaps universally understood was to adopt a vocabulary that could be universally understood. And I think that's how he adopted 
geometry and abstraction based on rather rudimentary systems that could lead to very complex visual results. This really mirrors what's going on in a lot of the world in the years after World War II, in which humans come to have somewhat less faith in humans and more faith in systems and math and geometry and artificial systems with rules. So he fits nicely into into um, a key global narrative. So as I, I mentioned earlier, you identify 1952 as the year in which Morellet begins making his mature work, mature work. And he does this with a series of geometric paintings on wood. Why, why does he start with, with this mix of things? So geometry, paint, wood, why there? These are not, you know, these are kind of old traditional painting things in many ways. It is very true. It's interesting for an artist who precisely had been aiming at challenging certain conventions or certain tradition of painting. But at first he really wanted to remain within that tradition because also he deeply respected it and admired what had come before him. What really mattered to him was basing his work on predetermined rules that would allow him to keep his own number of decisions at the minimum. Interestingly enough, the reason why, at least at the very beginning, he cared so much about painting, which for a while he almost abandoned the following decade, but he really started with painting, maybe for, again, two reasons. Art historically, he had been tremendously impressed by the work of Mondrian, which he discovered through reproductions in catalogs first and then in flesh in the late 40s. And the second influence was his visit to the Palace of the Alhambra in Granada, south of Spain, in 1952. The question of creating motifs, but then they're never quite based on composition. He's actually a truly anti-compositional artist, but who on a personal level, had uh, grown up in a background and family that had great respect and interest for painting as a tradition. When you talk with his widow, Danielle Morlet, who was uh, a wonderful companion to the artist his entire life and to whom actually we all should be thankful for keeping such beautiful archives, well, Daniel Mollet always says that, in a sense, François Mollet, who was very close to his father, and his father, who did a, a career in, as a high state employee, was a préfet in the region, was also a friend of the arts and had great respect for painters. Artists at the time were all painters, more or less. And that's what art meant to most people. And that was a way for François Mollet to please his father. And that was a joke a bit in the family, but it seemed to be very true. So as we get into the the late 50s and 1960s, Morellet goes from geometry, systems, formulas to embracing chance. Why? I mean, that seems like uh, a real opening of the field. Why, why did he do it? Around the same time becomes fully systematic. That is, the works don't rely only on, let's say, surreality of the mere repetition of a geometric content, but really is based on a system that is almost a conceptual apparatus. Let's say the rotation of an orthogonal grid is going to be superimposed a number of times. 
the angles, just giving, again, a factor of variation. And around that same time, well, again, he decides to fully rely on system, in a sense, to fully rely on order. So you have this paradoxical quality of François Morlet that appears exactly simultaneously. And when I say chance factor, it is both completely arbitrary in a sense, but it also allows for this once the basis of the work or the basis of the system has been decided. So one decision allows the artist not to take any others because the rule of play that he adopts becomes self-generative. To be more specific, chance factor, it's as an organizing factor, was defined by Morellet as mathematical formulas. But he wasn't a wizard of math. He always admitted that maybe he had an 11-year-old level in mathematics. The point was not, again, to mystify the audience. On the contrary, he wanted to make sure that anyone could understand the work. And this is also why the titles of the works are also very revealing, self-explanatory. The point is to explain how things work. And I'd like to give you an example. For instance, in uh, 1960 and on, he develops a series entitled Random Distribution of 40,000 Squares Using the Even Odd Numbers of a Telephone Directory. 50% white, 50% yellow. Then variations of color. The point was to also play with this contrast effect between two strong colors or complementary colors. The point is here that very simply the artist who at the time, and I think it's important to note biographically, was actually working for a family factory, the family business. It was a toy factory. So he would work on his painting and later on on his installation works, neon works, etc. Only in the evening and over the weekend, Yvan Abois mentioned, actually quite jokingly, that he was un peintre du dimanche, like a Sunday artist, a Sunday painter. Which is true in terms of objective occupation, but also gave him all the freedom to create things that could be as radical as possible because he did not need to sell and he didn't have to take into consideration the market. The notion of chance, to be very practical, came from numbers taken from telephone directory. His local phone directory from Menéloir, which is the name of the département where Cholet lies, starting with page 313-313, where his address and his phone number of his home appears. And then he reads aloud, very often actually with the help of his wife or his eldest son, would read the numbers out, the last numbers. And if the numbers were even, he would get a color and an even another color and so on until it filled the entire square itself made out of 40,000 smaller squares. Another source of mathematical chance was to adopt the infinite sequence of decimals from the pi number. And that's where it becomes interesting to see how such a systematic artist relied on logic was also a fierce uh, believer in irrationality. By definition, the pi number is an irrational number. It goes on and on and on. And this suggestion of infinity appears very clearly in his use of pi number. It was already present in his work. If we go back to his very first abstract geometry, 1952, 
what it was really hinting at with the repetition of parallel lines, for instance, never or barely ever framing, using a frame around this work, because the notion of all over painting was to him a symbol of infinity. After making paintings for years, Morellet begins to use um, neon. Where and how does he use it? And where can we find maybe the great example you've installed? François Morellet started using neon in 1963. And I must say we're thrilled at Dia to be able to show, include in our exhibition, the very first example of this instrumental approach to this new medium. François Morellet almost gave up painting in the 1960s, and that coincided with his co-founding and being a member of an artist collaborative called the Groupe de Recherche d'Art Visuel, or GRAV, from the acronym. And this group, he founded alongside fellow artists Horacio Garcia Rossi, Julio Le Parc, Francisco Sobrino, Joel Stein, and Jean-Pierre Ibarral. And their shared goal, and there was of course something of a neo-Marxist utopia going on in this group. But the shared goal was really to take a radical turn and to focus again on challenging the commonly accepted notions of artistic values and interpretation. And these goals they thought they could reach by creating dynamic situations, installations that for many of them were interactive, of which we also have an example. I'm proud to say that we're showing in the, at the Dia Chelsea, a 1964 neon, an installation called Reflections in Water Distorted by the Spectator. So right off the bat, through the title, we know that in this case, we're allowed to touch the artwork. And the artwork is going back to the very matrix of his earth that is an orthogonal grid, parallel lines being crossed at a right angle by all the parallel lines. And this time, the grid is made out of neon. It is mounted on the ceiling at such a position so that its reflection would be perfectly centered in a water pan. On the side, the spectator is invited to use a handle that will distort the surface of the water and by consequence, distort the reflection of the orthogonal grid. So very on again, we see a wonderful and witty example of how the artist both at the same time develops order and disorder, in a sense, system and chaos within the system. And I think that was almost a way to challenge himself as an artist, still making art. And I think there's this almost discomfort, and I'm quoting now Benjamin Bourlo, who we recently had a wonderful public conversation at DIA that was last Saturday between Ivan Labois and Benjamin Bourlo. Um, so Bourlo made this, I think, really interesting interpretation of François Morlet's sense of humor as maybe, as often, relying on a certain sense of discomfort. And the discomfort here was, again, what is the status of art and what is the figure of the artist in a time of social unrest? Interestingly enough, that group disbanded in 1968. They had developed happenings that would take, care, take place on the street. And then May 68 happened. And then they realized, well, maybe that's it. Maybe the society is taking over the utopia that maybe we were seeking through our art. And each of the individual artists went back to the individual 
practices and careers. In the 90s and and at the end of Morley's career, he died in 2016 at the age of 90. He returns to systems and results from them and to some of his original, and this is probably overstating it a bit, but his original source material, and that was decorative art. Why do you think he returned to it then? Why? What about it recaptured or maybe even held his interest throughout? What do you mean by decorative art? I, I'm, I'm not sure he produced much decorative art himself, but was quite influenced by it. Right, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. I see. Yes. Well, I think he never left him, really. One element that I think really provided also diversity to his work was to adopt new mediums and to expand spatially. Actually, as early as 1971, and this is another first of his that we're proudly showing at DHLC, was his first architectural integration, which again, quite wittingly, the artist renamed his architectural disintegration because he loved to come into a clash with the existing architecture. He felt that he was slowly ready to adopt a much larger scale that he had at the very beginning, which in a sense he admitted almost he felt intimidated by, and he felt that it was almost owned by the Americans at the time, who were certainly not shy or afraid of exploring vast scale, if painting or otherwise. The notion of decorative art, or even the very notion of distinction between fine arts, applied arts, and decorative arts, was, I think, of not much consequence for François Morlet, and that's why decorative art was so important to him, and again, the Islamic tradition of decorative art was important to him, which he felt was among the most refined and intelligent form of art, maybe not just for the reason that the maker would remain anonymous, but that becomes quite a different question when it comes to an artisan and when it comes to an artist. Fantastic. Beatrice Gross, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.